Husker Out Loud is a weekly podcast about San Francisco real estate from the Jackson Fuller team, San Francisco Realtors since 2002. Show notes with links are at jacksonfuller.com. Hello, listeners. We have a very special guest with us this week. And before we start chatting, I wanted to introduce you to her. Leslie Appleton-Young is the Vice President and Chief Economist for the California Association of Realtors, often abbreviated as CAR or CAR, the statewide trade organization for organized real estate with more than 195,000 members. Officially, Leslie Appleton-Young directs the activities of the association's member information team, oversees analysis of housing market and brokerage industry trends, and is closely involved in CAR's strategic planning efforts and Women Up initiative. Unofficially, she's just an awesome person with so much insight into the California real estate market that I like to think of her as a walking, talking Wikipedia. She earned a bachelor's degree in economics from the University of California, Berkeley, and her master's degree from the University of Pennsylvania. I hope you enjoy this special podcast featuring Leslie Appleton-Young. Hi, Leslie. Hi, Matt. How are you today? I am great. Awesome. It's a beautiful day in Los Angeles. Very nice. It's always a beautiful day in Los Angeles. Not always. Well, I don't know. Everyone else thinks. Always sunny in LA, right? Yeah, right. You are the chief economist for the California Association of Realtors. Uh, it's a job that you've been doing for quite a while now. And what is the job of chief economist? You know, it's great. Um, I work with a staff of about 15 people uh, in my team. And um, the core research group has uh, three economists. And then we have a wonderful support group that, you know, does the slides and helps with the surveys and and all of that kind of stuff. And then we do a lot of other things. So chief economist, the economics part is only part of what I do. I'm also, as you probably know, intimately involved in the Women Up movement program that we started uh, a year ago. I'm also um, in my area, we've got the liaison relationship between CAR and the local associations. So there's kind of a lot going on. The, the name of my group is the member information group. So that's a pretty big umbrella. Um, but with respect to the market, it's monitoring trends. It's looking at the data. And we do have proprietary data from the MLSs in California that allows us to do something we've done for, you know, 35 years, which is, you know, crunch the numbers on median home prices and sales activity. And um, it's it's pretty exciting. A lot of people don't know that we've got very localized information as well. So if you go to the CAR website, we've got dashboards that enable you to put in a zip code or put in a city and drill down, you know, look at the high end, look at the low end, look at the entry level, look at moderate priced housing, look at inventory. So we really try to be the source for our members, as well as provide a basis of information to use when we are, for example, lobbying legislation in Sacramento or in or in Washington. So we're kind of a hub of, you know, what's going on in the market, what's going on in housing policy, what's going on in Washington. And it's all with the lens of how is this information going to impact 
the California realtor and what can we communicate to our members to help them be successful in whatever environment we happen to be operating in. Um, and then I certainly spend a lot of time out in the field. Um, I've never been on a bad outreach. It's always great to get out in the field and give presentations and talk to um, talk to our members and find out what their concerns and questions are. So that's also a big part. And then maybe the, the other part, I get to staff a CAR strategic planning committee. So that's, you know, a whole nother wonderful activity where, you know, you're looking forward, you're reading a lot of articles and books that have nothing specifically to do with real estate, but have everything to do with how people live, how they communicate, how they view home ownership, how they'll survive and thrive in the future. So that's another part. So, you know, I try to get out to some key conferences during the year to get, you know, kind of shook up and, you know, challenged and see what's happening in the world and, you know, try to figure out what what is relevant enough to to communicate with our members who are already like overloaded with information from everybody as we all are. So it's a really, you know, it's a wonderful position. I'm extremely lucky to have, you know, wandered into CAR all those many years ago. And it's just been a great opportunity to grow and uh, be part of the industry. So you say, you know, since you wandered in the headquarters of CAR long ago and far away, but I have a feeling it wasn't quite that simple. How did you come to be at the California Association of Realtors? You know, I majored, I went to school in San Francisco and I majored in economics. And then I went back to the University of Pennsylvania and went to graduate school and ended up working at the Philadelphia Fed and getting my master's degree and um, getting married and, and living in New England for a few years. And then ended up back in California as a single mom to a one-year-old and not exactly sure what I was going to do. When I lived in uh, New England, I worked for a consulting firm, and that was really great. A lot of good um, growth and education there. So I just happened in January of 1984 to get a copy of the LA Times and look in the classifieds and see an ad for a research analyst. And I'm reading this, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I can do this. You know, I did this at the Fed. I did this at the consulting firm. You know, this would be great. And so I had a resume. I wasn't really even looking for a job yet, but I had a resume done and I sent it in. And within two weeks, I was uh, hired and working for Joel Singer and, uh, and Kathy Spiller at the California Association of Realtors. So it was it was really that fast. I guess I would say at this point it was meant to be. So that's an amazing story. And it just, every time you talk, it just makes me want to ask so many more questions and we're going to run out of time <laughs> here at some point. But it seems like a really kind of natural point. Given your involvement in the Woman Up movement, what was your experience going through very much, you know, the 80s and all male world working at the Fed in Philadelphia, a consulting firm in New England? You know, what experiences that you would be willing to share, either positive or negative, were really formative in helping you establish your career? And having been through that and where you're at in your career now, do you want to talk about Woman Up a little bit and, and what it means to you? Yeah, you know, I think Women Up is an opportunity to to give back and to share wisdom that has been, you know, it, it hasn't always been easy, you know, and as I look back 
at the 70s and and what that was like being in college and being an econ major and then going to graduate school. And not only was it a male-dominated field, and it still is to a great extent, but there were, I believe, 43 people in my class at Penn, and there were only three women. And so the you know, the professors didn't quite know how to deal with us, and we didn't, or at least I didn't quite know how to deal with that environment, plus the extra added layer of, you know, coming from a very, you know, Berkeley and a very free spirit kind of world to the East Coast, which back at that time was still very buttoned up and very traditional. And, you know, you got questions like, you know, what did your great grandfather do and where did he go to school? You know, which in California, you know, no one really asked those questions. So no, no one out here asks me if I came over on the Mayflower. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. So um, it, it just there was just a lot of disconnect. I, I would not say it was kind of the happiest period in my life. And, you know, the, the Women Up movement has given me an opportunity to kind of reevaluate that experience and understand that, you know, I did the best I could with what I had to bring to the table at the time and what the table looked like. And the table was pretty small and it was pretty difficult to have a voice. And I will say that ending up back at CAR and working for Joel, you know, was was just the counterbalance to that. Um, and, you know, I've been working at an organization that has had half of its senior leadership has been female. And I'm working in an industry where I am constantly interacting with incredible women, both as brokers and as um, as agents. So um, it was tough. The environment was very, uh, very different. There were very different expectations about how much a career really counted for a woman and, you know, all of that stuff. We could probably talk for hours on it. Um, but I really choose to focus on, um, at this stage in my career, how incredibly, I don't know, I just will say exciting. It has tapped into a passion to be working with women that are 20, 30, 40 years younger than I am and be able to share, suggest, and learn uh, learn from them because it's, you know, it's a whole nother generation. So I feel, you know, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to make some of those experiences count. And I will say that for the most part, most of my experiences were not overtly horrible. I mean, there were a few in graduate school with professors that were inappropriate and so on. And I'm I'm sure I'm not alone in having had that experience. But I think it was more just not knowing, you know, not knowing when you're offered more managerial opportunities to always say yes, instead of I'm not ready, you know, which I did once, you know, <laughs> you know, just kind of knowing what the rules of the game are. The traditional female, you know, like just kind of get small and, you know, the message today is get big, be who you are. Yeah, you know, just say yes and figure it out along the way, because it turns out that's generally what everyone else is doing, too. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. But certainly growing up in the 50s and 60s, that was not the message. You know, when I was in junior high school, I had two years of home economics. There were no boys in my class and girls were not allowed to take shop, which you know, may not be that big a deal, but it's just the mentality that you fit, you know, you had to fit into a certain box. You know, we, I had to wear skirts. It was, you know, I graduated from high school in 1970. The following year, the Long Beach Unified School District allowed girls to wear pants. Well, 
what a difference that makes, you know, to, to be more comfortable in how you're sitting and doing, you know, activities and being athletic or whatever, uh, whatever it is. So I kind of just, you know, I'm very grateful to have lived during this time period because uh, I've just been able to be a personal witness to incredible changes in us in society. Well, I don't want this to sound patronizing, but the part that just blows my mind in all of this, and, you know, I'm a dad, I've, I've got a husband, we have a daughter who's 13 now, but you did all of this and you were a single mom. That's insane to me. Yeah. I mean, I was a single mom for a couple of years and then I got, well, and then I got remarried and that was a bit of a tough slog. So, you know, I, I think um, when you get to a certain age and look back, I have yet to find one person who says my life turned out the way I thought it would, or my life turned out the way I planned it. And I would say that with respect to my career uh, with the California Association of Realtors and in the real estate community in California, I, it has just been so much better than I ever imagined to be in, in this uh, organization. I mean, I, I really mean that. It's been, it's just been delightful. You do it so, so well. Um, and it's awesome to hear that you love it too. And it's not just something you're doing. No, absolutely not. You had kind of mentioned in the strat planning part of your responsibilities in terms of strategic planning and, and working with the board of directors for the California Association of Realtors. One of the things I love about you is that when you come to market stats, not only do you talk about the data, this is what it is, but you generally have really perceptive insights into what's driving that data. Um, the trends and things to look for, things people aren't necessarily seeing. So at the highest level, what are the biggest trends you're noticing, concerned about, or, or think are really impacting what's happening in California housing? Well, I, I know this will not surprise you at all. Uh, the one, if, you know, when people ask me, what is the one thing I should be watching to find out where the market's headed? Um, I always say, look at inventory, look at supply, because that is the future market. And what's so fundamentally obvious about the market, not just in California, but nationwide today, is the lack of inventory. And it's partly a you know lack of construction, new construction. And it's also just this huge demographic shift. <laughs> Uh, where boomers are not in a position um, or desire or both to move on. So, you know, you go back in the 70s and on average people moved every seven years. And today people are in their homes 20 years in California. The housing stock used to turn over eight or 9% a year and now it's half that. So we just aren't getting the same velocity in the market that we did. So when people talk about how good the market is today, it always surprises me because as an economist, I'm not just looking at price and the price and you're up in San Francisco, you know what I'm talking about. The price appreciation uh, since the crash has been unbelievable. Um, it's too unbelievable, right? Yeah. There was, I think a headline in the paper today, does your house earn more money in a year than you do? <laughs> yeah, there you go. So there's that. But look at the number of transactions. They've been flat for five or six years, essentially. 
there's been no movement. We are stuck. We have fewer transactions today statewide than we had when we had 10 million fewer people. Right. I was reading a release from NAR this morning and Lawrence Yoon was saying we have the same number of transactions, which is about 5.5, 5.6 million at an annual pace that we did in 2000 and 2001 when we had 16 million fewer jobs in this country. So, you know, we used to kind of say, you know, is California destined to be a majority renter state, and in many cities, there's majority renter already. But even nationally now, it you wonder, you know, where are we headed when you don't have enough new construction and this big group of boomers? Now, eventually, they will move on, right, to their next chapter, and that inventory will open up. But, you know, one of the things we keep thinking about is, you know, anecdotally, you hear it. I'm going to leave my parent, my house to my kids. You know, um, I'm not going to put it back on the market. It's not going back on the market after I'm, after I'm not living in it anymore. So what is that? I mean, it's almost futile, right? It looks like Europe. <laughs> so just a lot of interesting trends. So we'll see. But certainly the dominant one is the inventory situation. And in the inventory trend, obviously, once things get really expensive, it becomes this feedback loop that no one can afford it, so on and so forth. But any ideas how we got to this spot? I mean, other than baby boomers just refusing to sell, why aren't Americans as a general clamoring for more home building? Or, I mean, if, if this is capitalism and the market responds to everything it would seem like the market would be building like crazy. Well, I think there's some there are some areas that are building and it's where people are moving. So you look at Texas as an example. You know, California is losing residents to Texas, Arizona, Nevada, uh, Washington and Oregon and they have some similarities, some differences. You know, Texas, Oregon and Washington have some very strong job markets. Arizona and Nevada have some very cheap retirement housing. So that's, you know, people are making choices based on um, based on the bottom line. You know, where can I go and where can I afford to retire? Or where can I go and raise a family and own a home? So, you know, you're seeing the former flyover states start to look very attractive once they reach a critical mass in terms of jobs, you know, so you've got a lot of growth in Nashville and a lot of growth in, um, in Raleigh and a lot of growth in Boulder and um, in, in Denver. So there is, there is growth happening and it will eventually even its way out. And all you need to do is look around the globe, you know, to see how other countries have handled this. Um, and if you're in a, high density environment, you've got to go up, right? You've got to go up around transportation corridors. Well, but we have in San Francisco, we in, would say no. <laughs> well, exactly. And that's the problem, right? That you've got the homeowners and property owners have so much power that they're able to nix um, even very reasonable developments. I mean, because there are ways to accommodate more people. It's just no one wants to do it. And you can, you can have a tremendous, I mean, I have a tremendous amount of sympathy for that. I go on the freeways and on a regular basis. So our infrastructure has not kept pace with the population either. And I think that's helped to fuel the uh, not in my backyard 
um, attitude. But the, the bottom line is, you know, people that are looking for affordable housing aren't sitting around waiting for, you know, Sacramento to figure this out. They're leaving and we're not losing the millionaires because of our tax structure. We're losing working class families and we're losing millennials who aren't just aren't, you know, unless you have a boomer parent that can help write a big check for a, a down payment, it's it's tough, right? So they're looking at, at options outside of California and they do exist. Do you think for most millennials right now, the American dream of home ownership is even attainable in California? Or is the American dream of ownership just gone? You know, it is attainable. It just may not look like what you thought it would look like. It may be a 900 square foot, two bedroom condo and a roommate, you know, instead of a, you know, three bedroom, two bath home on with a little backyard. I mean, there are trade-offs to be made. And if you're willing to make those trade-offs, you can make it happen. Absolutely. But for a lot of people, you know, they're in a situation where they, you know, they're, they're married and they want to have, or not married, but they want to have kids, you know, they want to start raising their family and the kind of, you know, small home trade-off isn't reasonable for them. No, it makes total sense. Um, yeah. You've got to kind of evaluate what's best for your situation. And especially in urban areas in California, you know, what we're building is small. It really is. Well, well, it's just really what you can afford. I mean, I, I think the the new buildings tend to be fairly big. I mean, the the developers make more profit off larger higher-end homes. And so that's been one of the challenges is nobody's all that interested in building um, affordable housing. So actually, that leads to a question I have for you. That would make sense to me, like, you know, suburban development. My understanding is in a like an urban environment like San Francisco, a developer's sweet spot is a one bedroom. Um, that yeah, they make no, the, I said, well, San Francisco right is sure. Well, well, maybe. I mean, San Francisco is. A very unique, right? It's a renter kind of domin- dominated city, and there isn't a lot of land. I was speaking more about the new new construction where they're building subdivisions and stuff like that. They tend to be, you know, not the smaller units. Yeah, no one wants to build multifamily developments for the most part. I mean, even getting them permitted and you know getting people excited about them in San Francisco is kind of a challenge. But the future, it feels like it's multifamily. Well, it's almost like we're um, mortgaging our future because we're losing so many people. And even the, you know, the the highly paid, you know, software engineers that are commuting from San Francisco down to Silicon Valley and so on. I mean, how long can you really do that? I mean, it may be a really nice bus, but it's a bus, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and you're not 23 forever. It's very true. You know, so it'll all shake out, Matt. I'm, I'm, it's shaking out now. It's just sad to see California's, you know, glow slightly diminished. I mean, certainly the economy, we're now the fifth, you know, independently, we're the fifth strongest economy in the world. There was a great article about California in the New York Times this morning that was interesting. And, you know, we're, we're a powerhouse, but in terms of quality of life, you know, anyone that was here 20 or 30 years ago looking at, you know, the traffic today and housing prices, um, you can understand their shock and awe, you know, that this is what it's come to. 
Yeah. And, you know, I've also heard these problems described as, you know, problems of success. You know, that if California wasn't doing well, if people didn't want to be here, these wouldn't be the problems and challenges we're having. Yeah, well, I think that's true. I think that's almost a tautology, you know. I mean, yeah, exactly. Everybody wants to be here. If we were Nebraska, we would not have this problem. (laughs) So since you started in the 80s, how has your job changed? I mean, my job as a realtor has changed in some ways dramatically. In some ways, it's exactly the same. But back in the 80s, information, market data, kind of what you specialize in was not generally available. So it must have been incredibly valuable. You know, now you can't log onto the internet without getting a chart, a spreadsheet, you know, some data point. Absolutely. So how has that changed? Well, it's changed a lot. I mean, I remember when we would put press releases out in the 80s and we would have like 25 reporters lined up to talk about the market and what was going on. And today it goes out on the Internet. I think, you know, we we get calls from from the press for sure about, you know, policy issues and so on, but very rarely about the market, because as you said, it's ubiquitous. There are analyses that are, you know, ready the minute the data comes out and, you know, with different perspectives and all, all of that kind of stuff. So it just isn't the uniqueness that we bring to the, the table. The, we've, we've always had a focus on survey research and we've really doubled down on that because that's been kind of the area that we, that we staked out that we do a pretty good job on. But again, there's competition for that as well. But way back in 2000, we started a survey and it was not a very elegant title, but it was traditional buyers versus internet buyers. And I think the first year we did it, you know, less than 20% of the people said they use the internet in their home search process. Well, you know, fast forward, you know, 10 years and we didn't call it internet versus traditional buyer anymore because everybody was on the internet, you know, so we were able to kind of live through that transition and monitor it uh, with, you know, how many homes did you see and how was your realtor and what was, you know, what did you like best? What did you like least? And um, the one thing that has not changed in all the years that we've been surveying buyers and sellers is just how important communication is, you know, how important it is to talk to people. And I don't care if it's, you know, your marital relationship or your client, how do you want to communicate and how often? You know, it's really important to have that conversation because if your goal is to exceed someone's expectations, why not exceed them in the area that's the most important, which is communication, and you can't exceed them until you know what they are. So there's always a gap between the speed at which people want to hear back from you and, you know, I want a text and I got a phone call or I wanted to see you in person and I got an email. So that, I think, is the one piece of advice I have for realtors about anything they do with a client. And that is get the rules of the game of communication set immediately so you know how to effectively get the dialogue going. And just to be clear, you know, when CAR is doing this research, consumers aren't complaining and upset that we're talking to them too much. It's not enough communication. Yeah. And it's being surprised, you know, I mean, if you can set up and I always used to say, you know, you've all had really funky transactions. When you meet a new client, why don't you describe some of the things that happened 
or that can happen in a funky transaction and how you solved the problem. You know, so you're kind of advertising your ability to solve problems. But, you know, the first time through, most buyers think that once they're in escrow, they're done. And, you know, we know that that's the beginning. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's just where the fun begins. You get into escrow, that's <laughs> often the beginning, right? Yeah, and it's completely the beginning. Search is just this pre-thing, right? It's, it's finding the house which is, of course, in of itself a process. But yeah, you know, it's, it's not until you get to escrow that, you know. And, and here in San Francisco, of course, just search can be strange and funky. Um, so right. never right. a moment. Yeah. <laughs> I have so enjoyed speaking with you today. Um, kind of in wrapping up, are there any other thoughts you wanted to share, things you wanted to leave us, uh, insights? Well, I think that, you know, you're up in the Bay Area and – I like to describe the Bay Area as a Petri dish where you actually get to do a controlled experiment, you know, like in a, a laboratory. And in this Petri dish, you have job growth, household growth, and income growth, but you don't have housing growth. And what does that look like? You know, what are the implications? How does that wave go out from that situation? You know, you had you have this incredible, what are they calling it? The Apple the donut, you know, the sphere that, you know, you've oh, got, what, eight, yeah, you've got 8,000 jobs and no new housing units. Like, what does that look like? You know, how does that work? Because, you know, we're going to see this play out over the next 10 years or so, you know, what the response of households and firms is to an environment where housing is just so expensive that people can't afford to live anywhere near where they work coupled with one of the most vibrant economies and beautiful geographic areas on the planet. You know, what does that look like? So I'm always interested in following what's going on up there. And the one thing I know is however it plays out, it's going to be interesting and it's going to be a surprise. I'm just not going to be surprised that I'm surprised. <laughs> That's very meta. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's, um, I, you know, I don't know what it looks like. And sometimes I feel like I'm too involved because I'm a part of San Francisco and, and those dynamics you just described. I'm, you know, the least objective person, you know, while I may have insights from being close to it. And yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't think any of us are quite sure what this looks like. But my experience of living in the city right now is as a city, we're all pretty stressed out about it. Yeah. No one's loving it. No, no. It must be very hard. And on that perky note, thank you for joining us. Of course. It's really great to spend some time with you, Matt. Absolutely. Anytime. Can I can I wrap up with a, a quick story about you? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so when I first became a realtor, uh, way back when, one of the first San Francisco Association of Realtor events I signed up for was a luncheon featuring you. Yeah. And it was the old Cathedral Hill Hotel. Oh, yeah. Uh, which has since been demolished. It's become a hospital. But let's just say the hotel was past its peak. Yes, yes. And I'm looking around, and I'm new to real estate. I came from tech. I used to work for Apple. And I'm looking around, and I'm like, really? This is what I signed up for? <laughs> and then you started talking. Yeah. And I was blown away. I was just like, wow, Aww. she is one of the smartest people I have ever heard speak, and someday I'm going to know her. 
And that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great story. Matt. Although I forgot about it, right? I, you know, like I had that moment and then I went out and was just purely focused on, you know, trying to, to build a career and make real estate work for me. And then, you know, decades go by and I know you now. <laughs> right. Absolutely. We're friends. Yes. You are an incredible Absolutely. friend. Absolutely. And I, I'm amazed to think of you as a friend. You're just one of the most intelligent, compassionate people I've met. And thank you. Well, thank you for all you do for us, Matt. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for all you do. And um, thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Anytime. Escrow Out Loud is a weekly podcast about San Francisco real estate from the Jackson Fuller team, San Francisco realtors since 2002. Show notes with links are at jacksonfuller.com. Wow.